All right, my friends, we are back for part two of our series about the things that Amy wishes someone in the world would have warned her, put up a big flag or something and said, you're about to start a business, a SaaS business. Watch out. This stuff's coming. Actually, there's a reason I titled the blog post things I wish I had known because some of the stuff in my list is the kind of advice you'll hear from people and then you believe it won't really apply to you until it's too late. You know, it's funny that that that's something that I think we see. We see a lot. There's all kinds of things that we on this very podcast or in our class and our blogs, we write about it and people. It's not that they don't believe us. In some cases they don't believe us, but there's a certain element of you need to experience to go, oh, that's maybe that's what that was. Now yeah, I get dude, it. I can totally sell the restaurants and bars for my scheduling software. Yeah. What are these guys talking about? It'll yeah. be easy. They really need it. Oh. <laughs> well, we're not talking about restaurants and bars or even technically scheduling software, but the second topic in the series of five is about teams. It is about people. It's about people and why they suck. Well, let, let's <laughs> hang on a second. Let's now, now, people don't suck. There are people who suck, no doubt, but people are definitely difficult. There are many individuals who are wonderful. Yeah. But. People when as a category. To perform roles, they may not be so wonderful. All right, let's go so far as to say people are harder than you would think. Yes. Okay. We can, more, we can agree with that. More challenging. Uh, I think the title of the section in the blog post was Teams Are Not Just Add Water. Teams are sea monkeys. Go on. Surely everyone of a certain age was mortally disappointed as a child by sea monkeys. It seemed like it was going to be a good time. Yeah, they looked cool. They were wearing crowns. They had furniture. The, like the, in the illustrations in the in the magazines where you would buy the sea monkeys from, it looked like they were going to be these really cool pets. And there was even the cartoon. Did was you there? ever watch the cartoon? The cartoon was creepy. No, as you can imagine, a cartoon about sea monkeys would be a family of sea monkeys, as you just described them, but as cartoon characters. It was sort of in that category of like Smurfs and Snorks, but not really. It was it was in that time period. It was not good. I'm pro snork. Anti-smurf. I'm also, also pro-snork. Another day I want to find out why you're anti-smurf. Not today. We're going to table that one. Bottom, bottom line is they're creepy. Anyway, sea monkeys, in the ads and on the box, you're like persuaded by the graphics. They're going to be like really cool and interesting to watch and they'll be like doing stuff. And then you add the water and then they're just fucking shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> they're like water centipedes. So, Too many legs. <laughs> so disappointing. They don't do anything. And they certainly don't sit in their furniture and like have little like family, no. shrimp family conversations. No, they don't even fight or anything. There's n- literally nothing interesting about sea monkeys except how they persuaded you that brine shrimp were like somehow going to be a cool pet. It's a story about marketing and not substance. You know, I never really thought about how weird the name sea monkey was. Like, it's deceptive. N- and nothing they actually describe is monkey like. No. It's very strange. Hmm. So. We're not actually here to talk about sea monkeys, though. Well, you're not. (laughs) Uh, We did want to talk about the fact that maybe like sea monkeys, a lot of people think of teams, collections of people. When you start introducing people to your business, we're not talking about customers. That's a whole other category. Yes. This is the teammates. This is the partners. This is the support staff. Contractors or um, service providers. The human element of business outside of the customer business relationship is remarkably, remarkably challenging. 
Yes. And I don't really think people is. prepare themselves for that. It really isn't. Well, everything out there that's written about teams are like, oh, my awesome team did this, or oh, my awesome team did that, or like hire the right people and get out of their way. It's like everything is a lie. It's such a lie. And there's an entire, I mean, think about the entire startup business parable. There is a main character in almost every startup story of the fabled co-founder or yep. co-founders. And how, you know, that match, that perfect match uh, led to success or the perfect teammates will lead to the, the, the ideal success. And, I mean, it can happen. It can happen in the, a world of things that can happen. But it doesn't always go that way. I think it almost never goes that way. So why don't we, rather than speak in circles around something, uh, a vague frustration or a lie, I think it would be useful for us to... You know, I don't think a lot of people talk about this because it's kind of tough. You yeah. don't want to, and, and we don't want to come across as accusatory, and we don't want to really, you know, shine a spotlight on somebody and be like that person screwed things up. But I think there's a lot of value in if you're going through difficult interpersonal relationships with your team to realize that, you know, this isn't just you. Right. This is tough, and uh, and and it's you might not be doing something wrong, but you're in a situation that needs correcting. So you're much more um, politic, shall we say, as in polite than I am. I'm not obviously going to name any names because, you know, legal stuff. But uh, I have a burn book in my mind. (laughs) A burn book as in people who you would not. You haven't seen Mean Girls, have you? No, I I have, but I don't remember that part. A burn book is where you write shit about people. (laughs) Okay. Not not that you've burned the bridges, but like literally I write see. all the nasty things you can think of in I this see. book. Anyway, I don't actually have one. I just sort of think about it sometimes. Um, I think that the best strategy with this podcast episode, if I can encourage you to do one thing, it is to shield yourself from other people in your business until the last possible moment, frankly. Because nothing will kill your motivation more than working with someone who makes your life hell. You know, if you have a unequal partnership or you feel like you're doing all the work or worse yet, they're actually undoing your work. And then you have these seething resentments or even arguments or yelling, or then there's fights over who owns what that will kill your business instantly. Very little will survive that. So I want to, I agree that people jump into these interpersonal relationships often too fast and too early. And I think it maybe would be good to qualify what the the last minute sounds like. Cause that right. sounds like somebody maybe burdens, not having somebody around for a little bit too long or in the wrong situation. So can, can you talk a little bit about when you have found is the right time to have somebody, whether they are, a partner or a team or that contractor support staff sort of thing. When, when do you actually decide, you know, it's not too late. It's not too early. I think, I think this is right. So I'm no expert on hiring at the right time, but I can tell you all the times when it's not right. Do not start a partnership with someone when you don't have a product. You think, Oh, well they have this skill and I have that skill. So therefore it'll be a perfect marriage. Well, a marriage between somebody who works and somebody who does housework or somebody who likes to vacuum and somebody else who likes to do dishes, that's, that's not what a marriage is founded on. And honestly, starting a business with someone is as serious as marriage and actually in a lot of ways harder to dissolve if, if you're over it. Yeah, there are uh, assets that are more difficult to untangle yeah, intel- in some cases legally. Property. 
um, but also financially, like it, it gets undoing a business is as hard, if not harder than undoing a marriage in a yeah. lot of ways. Most people I know who've had partnerships that went south ended up just dissolving the company entirely and no one got anything and the, the product was dead. Right. What so, a waste. So to, to put, a, a, to try and crystallize that a little bit, partnership that starts from a, we are going to come together and make a thing, but we haven't really decided what that thing is even yet. Or more importantly, a thing doesn't exist yet. You know, the abstract idea of partnering to start a business. Don't partner to start a business. Bottom line. Now, what about when there is a pre-existing relationship? I think that relationships work best when someone is clearly the person who is the decision maker. I've seen partnership partnerships work, but much rarer than a situation where one person is like the final decision maker. So ideally, if you decide that you later need a partner after you've been running your business for a while, then you are in a position where the roles can be clear, the ownership can be clear, who is in charge can be clear. That actually is much easier to manage. Lawyers and accountants will probably tell you that a 50-50 business is a big, fat mess. Yeah, and and I've seen a handful of different configurations, whether it's a, a 40-60 like you and I have, yep. uh, or uh, my other business with Jeff is a 51-49, and that one's an interesting one because you know it's literally a, a, a 2% difference. And in our operating agreement, what we drew the line was if I'm ever using my 51% to pull rank, we essentially use that as a clue that there are bigger problems afoot. So, but Jeff's like never around. Well, that's today, but these, but back when we were making early decisions and even up until this point, like the business partnership that we have works because Jeff and I understand and have made it clear how we're going to make decisions, what the expectations are and, and all of that. And when you try and set all of that up before a business is in motion, you're sort of inventing what might be. It's play acting. It's, it's basically playing house. Right. Now, you said if you don't know what the product is, like, no, back away. It doesn't matter how clear you think you are about what the product will be or what the roles will be. It's not going to work. Basically, 95 times out of 100, it's not going to work. You're just dooming yourself. And I say that as someone who actually has two separate businesses with business partners. Um, and we initially started Freckle with partners. Um, and that did did not work. And do you want to get into any specifics about what expectations did not play out the way you expected them to? So when I wanted to start Freckle, which is obviously a software as a service business, software service businesses grow slowly in almost all cases, no matter what you do, a software as a service can only grow so fast, right? So that was understood and stated and agreed upon with our development partners early on when we started Freckle. I had a design, I had a plan, I had a marketing plan, all this stuff. I had all this stuff and we agreed that they would have profit sharing of a certain amount over a certain period of time. And when it didn't grow fast enough, they just sort of stopped working on it and they got pulled away to do other consulting projects. And then they kind of wanted to renegotiate the terms where they only worked on it like every three weeks. And uh, I was like, no, that doesn't work, even though it wasn't making money at that point, making much money anyway. And that was like a year in. And I bought them out. We had always agreed that our friendship was more important than the business. And they actually followed through with that. So I offered to buy them out when I didn't owe them anything. And they accepted the buyout when they didn't have to, essentially. I think you just said something that is 
very, very easy to say and very, very hard to execute. Yes. Which is the friendship being more important than the business. People will say anything and they will even believe it. And most of the time it's a lie. Yeah. I think one of the hardest parts of any sort of partnership or collaboration, and, and I think maybe the mistake that people make is you spend all of your time thinking about how you're going to divvy things up when things are going right yep. or even great. But it's very hard to think about how you're going to want to be or act towards each other when everything falls apart. And maybe that's one of the most important parallels between personal, whether we're talking romantic or not, relationships and business relationships is the defining moments often are how you act towards yourself and each other when things have fallen apart. And And most people are bad at this. And especially because if you've never been through it before – it's back to what you're saying about it's like it's like role playing. It's very hard to imagine how you would actually be towards someone when things go south. Mm-hmm. So I can speak from from my perspective, having been in a similar situation, but on the other person's side, and also having the same relationship where the friendship mattered more than the business. You're talking about us, right? I'm talking about you okay, and I. Yeah. yeah. So having not sufficiently learned my lesson with our development partners on Freckle, I mean. I ended up crying a bunch, but it all worked out okay. And then when I wanted to create this class, the 30 by 100, the very first one called The Year of Hustle, I was, you know, super buds with Alex. And I was like, we should do it together because we would mesh really well together. And so you came out to Vienna and we whiteboarded the whole thing. And then we started working on it and you dropped off the face of the earth. (laughs) <laughs> well, and just to qualify what happened there, that was not for a lack of desire or or lack of growth. It was I made a mistake in that I overcommitted myself yep. and I had taken on a couple of other consulting projects at the same time. And they both sort of ballooned a little bit out of my own control. And that was my own learning curve there. But when I found myself in this position where I was like, I've made a commitment to more things than I can reasonably do something's got to give. And I know the place where I'm doing the least version of what I know I'm capable or what I'm expected to do is my work with Amy. Yep. I was just not following so through. So as I was on the other side of the country, of the world, actually, slowly working up the desire to throttle Alex, he actually came to me and said, I'm being a shitty partner. Here's your money back. Sorry. Which made all the difference in the world because instead of being aggro and expecting to work less for the same deal or a similar deal. He was just like, I screwed up. Um, I relinquish my claim on the money and let's, let's still be friends, which would work for me. Yeah. Clearly. Cause we work together now. And another part of that from my side of the table and, and perhaps is useful to somebody else is really, I'm always thinking about long term, and it's not just that I value the friendship though. I do. It was that if I ever wanted a snowball's chance in hell of us working together on something again in the future, ever, if I could possibly imagine the desire for that to be the case, I need to do right now so I can keep that door open in the future. Not that Amy would necessarily want to, although obviously we've made different decisions along the way, but that was that was my long view in, in that. And it is, look, it's hard to do. And if I had brought in that money and already spent that money, yeah. I might have had to make different decisions. I might have – I don't know. There's no way to know in an alternate timeline would I have taken some of my consulting money to pay it back. I like to believe that I have the integrity to have made right on it in the best way possible. I believe you do. But it, the hard part of this, again, regardless of which side of the table you're on, is looking at this and going, just because on paper someone is my partner – 
doesn't mean I have the right to something, right? It's about what makes the situation equitable. You know, things change. Partnerships are drawn on paper, but reality changes. You have two options. You can either change the reality or you can change the agreement. And it's that simple. Most people won't. Most people won't admit that they're wrong. They won't fix their mistakes. They will get angry when you've pointed out that they're doing something wrong instead of sorry. There's a fancier word I'm looking for. Apologize? No, no. They will feel bad and then make amends. Uh, Most people won't. The fact of the matter is a person can seem like a good friend or a decent human being until you get in a work situation with them where they feel that they have ownership and then they become entitled and then they slack off and then they get aggravated when you point out that they're not doing their job and then I've seen this happen so many times is one partner is doing all the work and the other one still feels entitled to their share or their money because quote I'm a partner unquote right it's not a good situation it really ruins relationships and it ruins products and it ruins businesses that would have otherwise had a great potential to succeed yeah, I, I agree completely. I think at the heart of all of this, that sense of entitlement is really at, yeah. at the core. If you are going to put yourself in a situation where you have partnership, uh, I think one of the best personal antidotes to that is to make sure there's some form of gratitude in your own practice, in your relationship, stepping away from the work and just sort of like appreciating each other, appreciating the work. That is hard. Like if you're getting to a partnership and expecting it to just work by working <laughs> together, you're Good fooling luck. yourself. But making sure, I think if there's a practice that you can introduce into partnership, it's, it's gratitude. And that sounds a little woo-woo and fluffy for us in our conversation, but it's something that you and I have talked about a fair bit. Absolutely. And but I think that there's no amount of gratitude that will fix most people because they're shitty partners. (laughs) So I'm like, just don't do it. Don't do it until you have the money and the legal resources and everything to be sure that everything will be fine no matter what happens. I suggest not doing it. Don't, Don't form a partnership, especially don't form a partnership because you think this other person will fill some role that I need. That is a terrible reason. I agree with that completely. Terrible reason to start a partnership and that's why almost 100% of partnerships form. Right. It's that sort we're of, like, it's fun. it'll be fun to do something together. That's also terrible. It's like marrying from money or looks. Right. It's like, you're, like you complete me. And I'm like, ah, that's probably the wrong reason. That's not partnership. That's, no, it's using right, someone. Right, exactly. Yeah, fail. So let's... It actually brings us to hiring people, I think. It does. You think that you're hiring for a role. You're like, oh, I don't want to do email support anymore. I'm going to hire somebody for that. That doesn't actually work out well either. Why is that? So for starters people tend to look at employees as simplifying or reducing their workload. And unless you hit a gold mine, that's actually not what happens. And even if you do hit a gold mine, you first have to dig the mine before you can get the gold, which means more work before you have less work. Right. Right. It's not as simple as outsourcing. Tasks are not fungible, even when, you know, you've got good documentation and a training process and things like that. I think we've all gone through the experience, like specifically with support of using a company and everything works great when the founders are doing the support and they start adding staff and the staff are terrible. And it's because the founders thought that they could just plug in employees and not put them through rigorous training and monitoring their work and checking it and reworking it as necessary and training them. And uh, then support gets really bad. And then people get really angry. And it's all because the founders didn't understand what it meant to have an employee. Right. So in in this particular case, 
you're hiring the, the 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 mistake here in a lot of cases is hiring for a particular skill. You said for a role, whether right. that's support or something technical or really whatever it is. When you're bringing somebody in, you think you're bringing them in to do a job, and to a degree you are. But yes. how do you turn that around? Like what having having now hired uh, and and had to learn what it is that you're looking for. Do you have a sense of what makes a good hire? Sort of. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't have great people sense for hiring, which is why I've been asking Alex to double check my choices. I don't like people. I think that's what it comes down to. <laughs> Actually, what it comes down to is I'm, I'm very optimistic because I look at a person and what they've been doing and think you're more than capable of doing this thing I asked you to do and I'll help you, but you can do it. And most people really don't react well to that. Most people do not actually want to learn or stretch or grow at all. And so I have to learn to not be at all helpful and to see what people do if I basically ignore them. So the, it's the capacity when Before you see... Before I hire them. When you see there's an... Op, oper, when you see someone, and wh- regardless of where you're hiring them from, when, whether they have the, the capacity to do the work is not the same as right. the momentum, the desire, the drive to be... To sit down with a task and actually see it all the way through or even to hit a roadblock and then ask for help. Right. So in my experience, the average person who was an employee at other companies and might uh, like apply for your job um, is used to being told exactly what to do, not really monitored because they work at a larger company and then their mistakes and stuff go unnoticed and they are not used to proactively looking at their own work. They're not used to finding something to do. They're not used to making processes more efficient or any of these things, all of which you can teach, but which are extremely intensive to teach because you're essentially trying to turn them into a new person. Yeah. So um, a person can work really well at a role in a large company and work terribly as an early employee in a small company because they're actually made to be a cog And it's not that that is all they're capable of being, but it's all they're capable of being now. So you don't want to take on a remodeling project. And it's really hard because if you look at someone and you see their potential, it doesn't matter what you see at all. It only matters what they see. Right. So the flip side of that and what I've been trying to do when I've done in my own hiring and what we're now working on together is looking for, I like to look, it's it's a nuanced shift it's seeing people for their potential, but it's more about the potential momentum, their desire, their drive, their curiosity. Technical skills, unlike those professional skills, are te- teachable. I think that's what we're talking about is the delineation between technical skill and a professional skill. And I think about, um, do you know, you know Dan Mall? He's a designer here in the Philadelphia area. So Dan's been running an apprenticeship program sort of quietly for the last three or four years out of his design studio. Never heard of it, so it's quiet. Yeah, and uh, he really just started talking about this in the last couple of months. And... One of the really interesting things is he specifically hires people who do not have any design background or skills whatsoever. From the awesome. technical side of things, he says, if you've ever picked up Photoshop, you are less likely to be a candidate for this. I want, I don't want to have to unteach you bad habits. <laughs> I want to build Give me you a up. child of seven yeah. type situation. But nice. He, but here's the thing is the way Dan has structured the teaching of the design skills is it's all wrapped around skills of professionalism. Things like estimating time and effort. Things like breaking big things down into smaller things. Nice. Things like communicating, progress, updates. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And part of the reason I know it's brilliant is because when we were talking about the outcomes of like, well, what happens then on the other side of this right. apprenticeship model? 
is a lot of those people come in because they want to get a job in the industry. They want to get a job being a designer at an agency. Some of them want to be freelancers. And Dan then uses his network to help connect people with potential jobs. That's really cool. Which is super cool. That is really cool. Here's the cool part. As oh, that, all of that's that not that, the cool part? No. When Dan places one of his apprentices and six weeks later gets a phone call, not even six weeks, like two or three weeks later, gets a phone call from the person who runs that agency and says, how did you make this person billable on day one? (laughs) I've never hired somebody who was billable on day one. And you maybe as an employee know what it's like to not be billable on day one. And if you've ever hired somebody, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're, you're generally, there's a, there's a handful of days at the very least. And I think the common theme between what Dan is producing as a, uh, the person that is coming out of Dan's mentorship and the people that I actively seek when I'm trying to hire is someone with those professionalism skills in place. Because on day one, they can be billable if they are able to, they have the capacity to yep. be professional. They have those, they have the drive, they have the motivation, they have the momentum, they have the skills. That's built in, that is habit. If I have to teach that, that's why you're not billable until day five or right. 15 or 50 or never. Right. Absolutely. So looking for those professionalism skills and you mentioned before, you know, a a trial period. Yes. We only do trial periods now. I've learned my lesson. So what does that look like? So trial period is usually three months with a specific project. So it can be a contracting gig. So there's a specific scope and there's a specific project and there's a specific price. So it's structured exactly like a consulting engagement. And then at the end of that, if everybody's happy, then make a job offer. And that's if everybody's happy. If everybody's happy. That's the other thing is, is we often look at this as a, I have a job and you get the job. But even when there is a positional you know, delineation, if both people aren't getting something out of it, and I'm going to go so far as to say, so long, if, there is, if all there is is exchange of money for work, it's not going to last. No. And I personally find interpersonal stress to be extremely draining. I know how woo-woo special snowflake that sounds. But with my health issues, it literally makes me sick to my stomach to deal with people who are, like, not pulling their weight. And I'm sure vice versa. If I can't provide what they need, then I feel bad. So it's really important to see how a person does if they're kind of pushed off in the deep end. How do they actually manage a project when, of course, there's going to be unknowns. You don't ever just hire a support person and all they ever do is email support unless you're a big company with money to burn. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I think has worked best for me and, and having learned throughout all these these stages and attempts and phases is to be as clear as possible upfront about the expectations, not about the expectations of what they're going to do, but that you expect them to be in dialogue and improving it. Something you said very, very quickly before is looking for things that need doing. A lot of what I try and remind people of, and this is not attractive to everybody and maybe one of the the fastest dividing lines between someone I'll hire and someone I won't, is the person who their eyes light up at the notion of part of your job is to make this job better. Like part of your job is to design your own job, to look for things to do that need doing. Come to me and say, hey, I think this thing needs doing. In the best of scenarios, even have a little bit of a game plan of here's how I want to approach it. For me, and I'm totally comfortable saying this up front to somebody, 
if that's interesting to you, then this job might be great for you. And if it's not, that needs to be okay as well. So I have said all of that type of thing to people when we have been preparing to hire someone. You know, like there's no grunt work in this business. We all do it. And then I have still managed to hire people who say the right things at that time and then get bitchy when we expect them to like do the dishes once when obviously Thomas and I own the business and we do that kind of crap all the time. They thought that it wasn't in their job description. Yes, yeah, someone once told me it's not in my job description. Needless to say, that person didn't have a job for, yeah. for very long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I've, Which and I've astonishes seen... me because I am an upfront communicator, but if you, you go and you set expectations, you talk about this stuff, people will say, that's fine, works for me. And they're lying. What people say. I think they what, even believe it. What people say and what people do are very different things. I know. Which is the reason for this trial period and totally. letting people have an opportunity to show that they will look for things to do. Some people really like to tell you that, oh, the key to a good relationship is communicating. No, the key to a good relationship is being in relationship with a good person. You can c- communicate all you want, but if they're not the right person, it won't matter. And maybe to unpack that just a little bit more without drawing a line in the sand between good and bad, because I think there are even good people who aren't consistent. Yeah, who, that's who true. Don't, I, think, I think what we're looking for is I'm is, not saying is, is this person of, with the dishes was a bad person, but she was a bad employee. Yeah. So what about – so we've talked about partners. We've talked about employees. Uh, what about – and maybe this one is something that doesn't come right away – but at a certain point, you do need to, quote unquote, outsource. Like at a certain point, you'll be doing your own bookkeeping. But then you really need to hire somebody else to do the bookkeeping and file your taxes. And, and you know, there's all this. Sort of like, your taxes. Did I say fly? You did. File your taxes. <laughs> um, all these like ancillary support operations right. things that, you know, you, at a small business size, you probably don't have a full time CFO. No, but that would be lovely. It would be lovely. So. I think that the, actually the rule for hiring employees and hiring contractors is exactly the same. It took me two or three times before I learned that I can't just hire an accountant and then trust that they'll do their job. <laughs> um, it really took me way too many turns around that particular awful merry-go-round before I figured that out. Mm-hmm. Um, that the core problem, they did a bad job, but the core problem was that I trusted them to do their job without oversight. Contractors actually generate more work. They do. That's just a matter of fact. It's like, is it better for me to outsource my task preparation? Yes, because I literally lose 50 IQ points when faced with a form. I can program, but I cannot fill out a tax form. My brain will explode. So I must outsource it. And it's a matter of learning that I have to oversee the process and I have to keep checklists and dates in mind and check And I now have an accountant that's proactive and does everything that they're supposed to do and more and reminds me to do stuff. But if I had had a better management of the process before, we would have had a lot fewer problems. The same thing goes for designers, developers, writers, support people, video editors, whatever. You think it's really tempting to believe that you can just slot somebody in and they'll they'll spit out work and be done. And that does happen very rarely. Mm. But most people have to be managed even if they're contractors. I heard you say something in the description there that you give someone work and trust them to do their job. And I talk a lot about trust. And I think the thing to think about is you can trust someone to do their job once they've earned that trust. And the title, the quote-unquote ability to do the job, maybe that's the theme through all of these things, is trust is slow to earn 
and fast to burn. Yeah. Not to intentionally be a poet you just there. coined. No, I didn't coin anything. You're not supposed to coin in public, Alex. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but that's true. I, you know, I think there's there are – it doesn't take a lot to earn trust, but it does take effort. Yes. And if you can do something in your partnerships, in your hiring of employees, in your seeking of contractors – sort of creating an opportunity for that trust to be built before you rely on that person. It's very, it's very hard. I would argue impossible to make a decision about whether or not you should rely on a person sight unseen. Yeah. Trust needs to be earned. I think you can maybe move forward a little bit faster when you have a referral or recommendation, but that doesn't always work either. I find referrals. I mean, a person who refers someone often is it like a friend or like someone who knows them from a user group or like something like that? And it's, you have no idea how that person acts behind closed doors. You have to actually base it on how they work. Correct. I have lots of friends and potentially even friends who are listening. So I'm not going to call you out by name. People who <laughs> are people that I adore, people whose work I admire, but I also know better than to work with. Yes. And not because they're a bad worker and I'm a good worker, but because our work expectations are not the same. Yes, and, and I think I think that is you know we can paint it as black and white as good and bad. All of this comes down to if you are not working with the same expectations, and you maybe come into things with a belief that the other person will be more like you, or that you can be more like them. That's where things come apart. I have literally complained to you repeatedly about people not doing simple things that I think are obvious, and you're like, Amy, it's like I do them, and I did them when I was like 19, right, working as a consultant, and you've told me. Amy, you're an outlier. I'm like, damn it, I am an outlier. The, assuming people are going to understand you or have your work ethic or be as devoted to the project as you are, even if they say they are, basically you're just dancing out on a limb and hoping it doesn't break. Right. It's, it's hopeful. It's hopeful. It's uh, hopeful. I feel like when you feel hopeful about a person or a project, that's a sign you should stop whatever it is you're doing because you're about to make a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Really take some time to find out like and and you know it's hard and potentially not even possible to have a conversation about what went you know how somebody acts when something went wrong but you know in the same way that you would have that conversation before you maybe get married like you have to spend yeah. time with people finding out who they really are before you ent enter into a term business relationship with them yes I think that's I think that's massively overlooked. It's so so overlooked. And I'm curious, you know, I think about this in terms of like a, a cultural context as well, where different parts of the world, and I see this through my co-working work, different parts of the world prioritize relationships and transactions differently. I think it's a very North American American point of view to like I don't care whether or not I trust you if the business deal is good enough. I'll right. deal with the repercussions later. Right, right, Versus right. other cultures where the trust is so massively overvalued that people will walk away from great deal terms because of a single under, not even un, but under-trusted person has entered into the picture. You think a lot of Asian cultures. I was going to say – we probably listened to the same podcast about Japanese business deals or something. I've, and I've read, I've read at length about it. <laughs> well, maybe, um, maybe it wasn't a podcast. Maybe it was just you talking at me. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Yeah, it's, well, hey. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, this all comes down to context and knowing who you're dealing with, whether it's a yeah. single individual whether and, and understanding their background, their experience. And someone who is new to all of this has no context. 
which makes it even harder. So I know it sounds like we're totally hating on the whole situation. Okay, maybe me, not so much Alex. Alex loves people. I don't. That's part (laughs) of why we work so well together. I'm wounded optimist. That's why. And I'm a cautious optimist. That is our difference. I mean, we have other differences. We have other differences too. I'm not saying don't hire people. I'm not saying don't have business partners. I'm not saying don't hire consultants or whatever, but you have to do it at a point where if it goes wrong, it won't break you. You have to be the one in charge. By starting a business, you're the boss. The buck stops with you. If you hire someone and they steal from you, that's your fault. If you hire someone and they need your help to do their job, that's also your fault. Or rather, your fault, your responsibility. You have to be the one to protect your interests. And I feel like if you've only ever been an employee, you are not prepared to deal with the boss stuff. So put it off until you can do it from a position of strength. Don't make yourself vulnerable for no reason. It's not like romantic relationships where you have to be vulnerable to have one at all. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a great spot to wrap that up. And, and I agree 100,000% that you being the boss, you taking responsibility. And maybe that's one of the hardest lessons in business, being in business for yourself, is that you yeah. are responsible for everything. Like You're responsible for everything. You don't get to point the finger at the employer or the contractor and say it's their fault. Even when it is, it comes back to you because you made that decision. You made that decision. You trusted that person. You didn't consult a lawyer or whatever. Whatever it is, if you don't take responsibility, you can't be the boss. You've created a job for yourself that no one is in control of. So next time we get together, we have yet another bullet point in your list of five things to talk about. Marketing. Marketing. Everybody's favorite topic. Everybody loves. Everybody dances every time he says, let's talk about marketing. No, and this is the expectation of how much marketing really goes into running a product business. Yes. For example, the idea that if your product is good enough, it will sell itself. Surprisingly, not true. Until next time. Until next time.